Well, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. If we haven't met, my name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Reality Boston. Um, and I'm excited that we finally have a Sunday under 90 degrees for the first time in like six weeks. It feels like a normal place that a person would want to be today. Um, but we are going to be continuing our Psalms of Ascent series. And we're actually, this is the 10th one in the series. It feels, I feel like we just started this, but we're actually 10 Psalms in here. Um, and so we're on to Psalm 129. And so the words are on your handout. You can pull it up on, uh, if you have a Bible, you're going to pull up on your phone. The words are also there. I'm going to read it for us. So Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like the grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So as we begin, I want to first like give us a little bit of context for this psalm. Uh, so it begins right with this pointed declaration of Israel living as a people under oppression. And this has been true of them throughout their history from the early days of their existence. Um, they're the chosen people of God according, according to his promises to Abraham, but they found themselves repeatedly throughout their history up to this point um, oscillating between freedom and oppression. Right there, and this psalm is written during um, the post-exile but pre-Messiah portion of Israel's history. So they've gone through, uh, they're still longing for the promise of God. They're longing for God to restore the kingdom of David, to bring back um, someone who would, would liberate them from the rule of the Romans, who had put um, a king on the throne. They've been under, right, they've been under the Egyptians, they've bickered with the Philistines throughout their history, they've had the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, they've had all, all these different like, you know, roller coaster of empires that have sought to inflict harm and destruction upon the people of God. But one thing has been true every time is that God has delivered them, each and every time. And so even as they come to this moment in their history, right, where we're reading the psalm and the worshipers are singing it in its original context, they're doing so under, um, still living under an occupying empire. They're living under foreign governors, even though they're back in their land. But the, the, the psalmist is reminding them that God has our back, that God has continued to persist with us. And if you notice there in the first couple of verses, there's this kind of liturgical form to the psalm. It's clearly being used in worship. Uh, he invites the congregation to say back to him, it says, let Israel say, greatly have they oppressed me from my youth. You know, it's like we sometimes do those responsive readings here. You remember those, right? Sometimes I'll say something and then you say it back to me. This is kind of the same, the same form here. Um, but what's crucial to draw out from this is kind of the connection between individual suffering and the communal suffering. The two are inextricably bound together. When the individual suffers here, the community suffers. And when the community suffers, the individuals are affected by it. There's no separation between the two under the yoke of oppression. And we know what this is like, right, in the present day. Um, if we think back to the summer of 2020, right, when uh, with, the, with the murders of George, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and many others, right, there was this outcry amongst many uh, people of color, and it was constantly that 
um, there is, we can see ourselves, right? This, when, when we see these, these people being murdered, we see our mothers, our brothers, our fathers, our sons. This isn't just something that's happened to another person. This has happened to all of us. Jamar Tisby, he puts it this way. He says, black people feel the pain and loss of black life as if it were our very own blood that had been brutalized because it easily could have been. And so this idea that the suffering of the individual and the suffering of the community being bound together is something that we should be familiar with. It's something that the scripture is familiar with. Um, it's also something that the church should be familiar with. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so we too, right, as God's people, we have this shared, this shared uh, sense of mutual well-being. Mutual, when one suffers, we should all feel it. When one of us is honored, we should all share in that honor. And so this kind of helps set the context for the psalm in which this declaration is going to operate, right? The oppression of God's people from the beginning of their story and that the, the world is going to continue to seek to marginalize and oppress the community of faith. But we can be assured that they will not prevail. That's one thing that the psalm makes clear. The end of verse 2 uh, declares of the boldness and the faith that, that God's people... Uh, even though this oppression has been long and continuous, that those who have oppressed them have not won. Verse 2, it says, they have not gained victory over me. There's this persistence and perseverance spirit within the community of faith that cannot be quenched because God is on our side. And then the psalm turns into this, this image of farming, right? Does anybody, anybody like from the Midwest or like grow up on a farm? All right. Not, not yet, no, you didn't grow up on a farm, but, you know, St. Louis counts, right? That's the Midwest. Um, Probably not, not, not the, I'm thinking like South Dakota maybe, like just rows and rows of cornfields. Get that image in your mind, right? Uh, verse 3, it says, Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. So think of like a big like grass field, maybe like a football field, you know, just a big, big piece of grass. Now imagine this team of oxen, right? You know, oxen, they get strapped up with the plow and they just start cutting through the field, like one long row at a time, back and forth and back and forth, and it rips, right, the grass is gone, it rips the field up to dirt, leaving these long furrows, that's what a furrow is, these like long straight lines in the field. Now take that image, right, of oxen plowing a field and replace the grass with like the backs of human beings. It's a very graphic and gruesome image of what oppression is, it's, it's people's backs being plowed like a field. But then in verse 4, there's another but, this time, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. I think this, is, this verse is the, uh, is the focal point of the psalm, so we're going to spend most of our time looking at this one, but God is righteous. He has cut me free. So with this image of the oxen, right, they're going back and forth. They're pulling the plow behind them, and then suddenly the cords are cut. So the plow gets left behind, the oxen keep walking, but nothing's happening. There's no more cutting, there's no more furrows, there's no more evil, there's no more oppression happening here. This is the idea of the cords being cut. But this is, this is something that pops up several different times in scripture. It's not just here, right? This image of cutting cords or bursting bonds, um, loosening the straps. Um, so I was gonna look at a, we're going to look at a few different times where this, this image of cord cutting pops up throughout the the scriptures here and see like how God responds to oppression, how he likes to, um, to intervene in the midst of that. So Psalm, or Psalm Isaiah 58, 
um, is, is probably like the, is the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking of this image. Um, it's this indictment actually against the people of God for themselves becoming oppressors. God rebukes them for their hypocritical fasting, which he rejects because they oppress their workers and they seek their own pleasure. And in the face of that, God tells them that the type of fast that he wants from them, in verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? He goes on to say that if his people will do this, right, if they fast from their wickedness, from their oppressive ways, they'll begin to find that the blessing of God will return to them. God wants his people to be cord cutters, to be uh, chain breakers like he is. And in Psalm 107, it speaks to this as well in, thir- in verse 13 and 14. It says that they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. So this image of God bursting bonds is this image of, of God's liberation, his deliverance, his salvation. And throughout the scriptures, we see this act that when God brings uh, deliverance, it's both physical and spiritual. When God liberates from sin, he sets creation free from sin and all of its effects, both the spiritual, the physical, the personal, the communal, the societal, all, all of it together. There's not this dichotomy or distinction between the physical liberation of God and the, the spiritual liberation. God's salvation from the yoke is also uh, foreshadowed in like the classic Advent text from Isaiah 9. No, it's not, it's not December, but we're going to go a little Advent today. Um, Isaiah 9 says this. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So the promised Messiah is going to be one who brings light He's going to shatter the cords and the yoke of oppression. And then Jesus ultimately makes this clear about himself, right, when we come to Luke 4 in the New Testament. When he gets up, he's in um, his, his hometown of Nazareth, and he speaks in the synagogue. He reads from Isaiah 61. Luke 4 tells us this. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus comes and he says that he is the fulfillment of God's promise of liberty from captivity and oppression. He identifies his own mission and purpose with being uh, the one who sets captives free. And in this context, in the context of all these passages, this, this covers both physical and spiritual, right? They've often been falsely set as opponents, right? Like spiritual liberation is here, physical liberation is over here, but God in Christ is the great liber- liberator of all of his creation, It's fundamental to his character. He acts for freedom and deliverance and salvation for his creation. He is the God who sets free. He tears down everything and brings bondage and death, and he replaces it with life and freedom. 
Uh, theologian Gustavo Gutierrez puts it like this. He says, the radical liberation, this radical liberation is the gift which Christ offers us. By his death and resurrection, he redeems us from sin and all its consequences. As has been well said in the text we quote again, it is the same God who in the fullness of time sends his son in the flesh so that he might come to liberate all men and women from all slavery to which sin has subjected them. Hunger, misery, oppression, and ignorance. In a word, that injustice and hatred which have their origin in human selfishness. So God's salvation that liberates us from the cords of sin, physically and spiritually. And so tying this back into verse 4 of our psalm, because God is righteous, he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. It's not just that God has cut me free, but it's because he is righteous. It's because he is righteous, righteous. His righteousness is the cause, it's the engine that drives this freedom. God is the righteous liberator. It's not that we are righteous, right? It's not because I am righteous, God has set me free. It's because God is righteous. And I think um, with a word like righteousness, right, it's kind of like this theological word that we all have our conception of what it, what it means to be righteous. Um, I think we don't often think of it as liberating. We often think of it as limiting. We often think of, of limitations and restrictions, right? What are the things we can do? What are the things we can't do? Um, this kind of moral, pietistic idea. And yes, it, there, are, there is a moral aspect um, to righteousness. But God's righteousness is fundamentally about life and freedom God's righteousness, it brings freedom from bondage, deliverance from captivity. It brings our rescue from sin, and it ultimately gives us true life in place of death. And so if, God right, if God's righteousness works to liberate and not to limit, the question I think we can ask ourselves is, does ours, like when we think of our own kind of conception of righteousness, does the way we live demonstrate a righteousness that is liberating, or is it one that is liber- limiting? I think in many church circles, right, there's this overemphasis on righteousness as morality. Righteousness is primarily, you know, doing this or that. To be righteous equals to be moral. Um, but morality is far from the totality of righteousness. And so to begin and end with that is kind of myopic. Our psalm reminds us that righteousness fleshed out means freedom and fruitfulness and flourishing. It's life-giving. And even kind of the moral piece, right, it's meant to be understood within the idea of God's design, right, that if God has designed creation to operate within these certain parameters, right, that that's where true flourishing, that's where true life is found, is operating inside of those parameters. Romans 6 tells us that we have been set free from sin so that we might live for righteousness. So righteousness is ultimately rooted in being set free, freedom from sin, freedom from bondage. And so I'm wondering, like, in your mind, right, in our minds, like, how does the idea of living a righteous life change if you begin to think of it as living, um, being about flourishing and being about freedom? Does that shift anything for you? A righteous life should be a force for producing life and fruit in our lives and in the world around us. The church's righteousness should lead to the flourishing of the society around them. If it doesn't, then it's distorted. I think the Pharisees are a great example of the opposite of this. Pharisees are kind of like an easy target, but they're, they're a really good one here. Um, their moral righteousness, right? They were like a 14 out of 10 on like the righteousness scale. They were like way, right, way over the top. Um, they were like the most stringent uh, sect of following the law. But they did so in a way that was actually um, brought people into greater bondage, not into greater freedom. The fruit of their righteousness 
was death. And Jesus has a lot of his harshest words for them because of this. In Matthew 23, he has these seven woes to the Pharisees. And um, I'm going to read two of them because they're pretty, they're pretty extreme. And verse 13, it says, or Matthew 23, verse 13, says, Woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And then again in verse 23, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So the righteousness of the Pharisees that led to bondage and death for themselves and for others, but the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus, and the righteousness of his disciples leads to life and freedom. So the question is kind of like, how do we prevent ourselves from kind of going down this route um, of the Pharisees? How do we know if we're on the wrong track, kind of becoming people who build up our own righteousness in a way that leads away from life and fruitfulness? I think the key is knowing that our, um, that our own righteousness is rooted in God's righteousness, that our righteousness actually is God's righteousness. It's not our own. See, in verse 4 again, it says that God sets his people free based on his righteousness, not on theirs. And this is true in Christ as well. When Christ sets us free, he makes us righteous with his righteousness. When we are righteous because God gives us the righteousness of Jesus and takes our sin. Luther called this the wonderful exchange. Um, And we see this most clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So God's ultimate act of cord cutting, of breaking and bursting bonds, is the exchange of our sin for Jesus' righteousness. He takes all our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of our shame and our guilt and our fear, and places it on Christ. And he takes Christ's perfection, his wholeness, his honor, his beauty, his glory, his righteousness, and he places it on us. This is a wonderful exchange. This is the crux of the gospel message. This is why it's good news. We don't have to earn it, that it's not ours to gain. It's given. And so when we're faced with a question, like how do we live righteous lives that produce life and freedom, I think we have to remember that we do so from a posture of already having been made righteous. That we're already righteousness. We were already righteous in Christ, that we have his life on us. We're already his righteous ones. We're living uh, from righteousness and living for righteousness. It's already there. Eugene Peterson says that Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. So that when we live righteously, right, it means our we're, we're rooted in God's own character. And so it should, we should m- mirror his character in that. It's fundamentally life-giving. It's holy, just, liberating, restorative, redemptive. It produces fruit and life and abundance and freedom and beauty and wholeness. Galatians 5 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is how we love our neighbor, right? To live as people who are free. To live as those who have been set free by the righteousness of God. To make that visible. To make that manifest in the world. To live in such a way that the values and that the gifts, the beauty of God's kingdom are made present to those around us. 
instead of being like the Pharisees who shut the door of the kingdom, we want to throw that door wide open with our lives for anyone to come into, for anyone to see. One commentator says, it works done in freedom make possible for both self and others the life that is assured by God. They bring in God's future and make it available to others. So faith brings self and others into freedom, not into bondage. This is what it means to love your neighbor. And so then the tenor of the psalm kind of shifts as it ends very quickly here. Uh, It shifts from the salvation of God to a declaration of judgment on those who work oppression. Verses 5 through 8 say, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So the farming analogy comes back. Uh, the grass, right, grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. Like it doesn't take a degree in horticulture or having grown up on the farm like none of you have um, to know that that would be like a useless waste of time to try to harvest some dead grass. Like it's a, why would you do that, right? So it's this image of ultimate futility, of evil and oppression, of working against the purposes of God. It's this futility that leads to decay, to withering, to shame, to lack of blessing, and ultimately alienation from the community of blessing and fruitlessness. Dr. King in his book, Strength to Love, says, when the slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the green herb. So these, these lines, they remind us that we have a God who gives us an enduring hope in the midst of unjust systems and circumstances that final judgment will ultimately come upon the unjust. Proverbs 1, verse 19 says, Such are the paths of all who go after unjust gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. So what is the psalm leading us towards? I think, in conclusion, uh, we've seen that because God is righteous, we are set free from bondage. Because God is righteous, we are righteous. And because God is righteous, oppression will wither away. I think what this all points us to is a perseverance, and that's how I want to kind of wind this down here, that this psalm uh, instills us uh, a sense of perseverance and uh, resilience, the ability to keep going in the face of opposition. Eugene Peterson says that the people of God are tough. For long centuries, those who belong to the world have waged war against the way of faith, and they have yet to win. They have tried everything, but none of it has worked. Do you think of the Christian faith as a fragile style of life that can flourish only when the weather conditions are just right? Or do you see it as a tough perennial that can stick it out through storms and drought, survive the trampling of careless feet and the attack of vandals? So in the end, we can persevere in faith amidst anything, not because we are perfect, but because God is righteous, because he is faithful. God will not let us be overcome. He sticks with us. He is on our side and our victory is ultimately secure in him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.